Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, everybody? Really awesome show today. Our guest is the managing partner of Coleus Capital, an angel investor in early stage startups. In today's show, we're chatting all about angel investing with one of AngelList's very top syndicate leads. We talk about our guest transition from entrepreneur to getting squashed by Facebook, and then on to investor and the difference between the two. We get into our guest investment philosophy and the benefits of being stage agnostic. Stick around because we talk about lots and lots of portfolio companies, including his early investment in billion-dollar autonomous driving company Cruise and former podcast alum Shane Heath Mudwater. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Long-time listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high-quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10east.co. Please enjoy this episode with Coleus Capital's Zach Coleus. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Longtime listener, first time caller, huge fan of the work you do. Good, man. Well, look, I've known you for a long time virtually, and in your honor, I poured myself a glass of mud water, Woo-hoo! which we can talk about later, but we had the founder on the podcast. I'm trying to remember about a year ago. We'll add it to the show note links. He's a Shame. local. Shane's awesome. Fun story, listeners. It's basically a mushroom coffee alternative. And I have sort of an issue, which is I love coffee, but like to my detriment. So I've been trying to go kind of half mud, half coffee Oh yeah. as a segue to not drinking a pot a day in the morning. And it's working so far. It's a nice blend. So that's awesome. We'll come back to mud later. Mud's a great story. I love mud. We're going to talk about all things, angel investing, entrepreneurship, wing foiling, all sorts of odds and ends. You got a pretty, I'd say if there is a traditional path for angel or VC, you kind of have it, right? It's the founder who starts out doing some companies and eventually starts investing. Was that sort of the right path for you? Yeah. The only difference is the traditional path is you're a founder, you start companies, you make a shit ton of money, and then you take that money and you don't have to do with it and you start throwing it into things as an angel. And my experience was I'm a founder, start some companies, have Facebook rip my guts out and leave me dead and bleeding on the side of the street. And sort of like, as I was crawling around trying to figure out what to do with my life and like what to do next, I mean, I literally got gutted. I mean, it's was, it was crazy. I'll tell you the story, but it's a crazy story. I stumbled into 
back in 2015, the very beginning of AngelList and AngelList syndicates. And one of the companies that I had been advising for a long time was a company called Branch Metrics, a mobile deep linking platform. And so I introduced them to Ben Narison, who introduced them to NEA to do the seed. And then when the A happened, I was like, hey, you guys mind if I put a 200K allocation up on AngelList and see what happens? And they were like, sure, go for it. And so I like wrote the memo about how awesome it is. This was like literally January of 15 when AngelList syndicates were nothing. Put it up. I emailed all my best friends. I'm like, please look at this. And 24 hours later, the, the allocation was full. And I was like, oh, look at that. I'm an investor now. That's funny. That's commonplace today. But I feel like in the early days, it wasn't that like instantaneous and ubiquitous where the companies would raise that fast. Maybe it was. I mean, I started investing at the exact same time, but that seems to be more of a rarity in the early days. I got really lucky. So one of my buddies, LA-based guy named Sky Dayton, he basically took a big chunk of that right out of the bat. And then a lot of my other friends, like they looked at that deal and they were like, well... Zach's kind of an idiot, but NEA is smart. So we'll put money in behind NEA here. And so that really helped get me off the ground. What ended up happening is the next deal I did was Cruise Automation, ah. the self-driving car company. Similar scenario, like Kyle's an old buddy of mine. And like I got in there because of that. And when that exit happened, GM bought them for a billion dollars like a year later. And then suddenly everyone was like, oh, Zach knows what he's doing, which wasn't true at all. But And then so a whole bunch of capitalists lost over my whole career as an investor was largely just built on luck and being at the right place at the right time. There's the old Julian Robertson who ran the Tiger funds for a long time and one of the most famous fund managers of all time. He had a piece of advice where he's talking to younger new managers and they said, what kind of advice can you give us? And he said, get really lucky in your first year because everyone will think you're a genius. You'll raise a ton of money and then you have to still deliver. But that's the best possible thing that could happen. So look, kudos for you. I sort of had a similar entrance to the asset management space, different, but a lot of serendipity and just timing where I had written an academic paper that came out before the financial crisis that kind of sailed through the financial crisis that had there been no financial crisis, no one would have read it. I mean, no one reads academic papers anyway, but fewer <laughs> people would have read it anyway. So it helps to be lucky, but you have to at least show up. I mean, had you not written that check, there would have been no luck anyway. Let's rewind. I want to talk about Facebook gutting you before we get into all things angel investing, because that's probably a lot of people can sympathize with that story. <laughs> what does that mean? They steal your idea? They buy your business and shut it down? What happened? The company we started with a company called Trigget, and we had started in 2015, my sister and I. We were one of the very first sort of ad tech platforms, and we got into sort of what is effectively now, we were one of the direct competitors with Trade Desk, and which is now a, I think, $30 billion business, and a bunch of other folks in that sort of like figuring out programmatic advertising and retargeting and using data to drive online media. And so, right before we got our butt kicked in that traditional DSP market, and kind of as we were getting ejected out of the back of the pack, we started talking to one of my good buddies, the guy named Antonio Garcia Martinez, who read this great book, Chaos Monkeys. He was over at the Facebook ads team, along with Gokul and a bunch of other my friends. And so right before Facebook went public, they screwed up their earnings because they had built their ad platform really poorly. I mean, really, really badly. They just didn't really understand what they were doing. And so they missed their earnings. And so Zuck goes to the Facebook ads team, and this is right before they went public. Zuck goes to the Facebook ads team. He's like, guys, 
what are we going to do? I need your best 10 best ideas. And so they gave him the 10 best ideas. He greenlit all of them, which like up until then, Zuck had been like nothing. No, 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 We're not doing any ads. But suddenly he was willing to take risk when it came down to going public. And one of the ideas was to open up Facebook to programmatic advertising. And so we were one of the launch partners for that because we built and I helped them kind of figure out how to design it. And like, and Antonio's the whole Chaos Monkeys book really kind of tells this whole story much better than I can. It's an amazing story. I mean, he's, there's a reason why I was a New York Times bestseller. It's like this great, well-written book. But we launched it with them. And I mean, we just crushed every metric they had. I mean, so when we went in there, the average ad would get one click for every 3,000 ads. So if you show 3,000 ads, you get one click. And we were able to basically make it so that you got 10 clicks for every 1,000 ads. So like huge improvement, 30x improvement, just like right off the gate. And the CPMs, when we went in there, were like 10 cents. And we were in there bidding a dollar plus to buy that same media. And so Facebook then saw us just hoover up every single big customer they had to work with us versus working with Facebook directly. So Best Buy, Home Depot, Booking.com, which is the biggest online advertiser in the world, Netshoes, Defici. I mean, it was like all of these big guys basically started working with us. And our revenue went from like a million to 30 million revenue in like 12 months. It was just like, woof. We had 300 million in bookings like ready to go. I mean, we were just like off to the races. And the Facebook team had this giant sort of debate internally of like, okay, do we continue with this open strategy and let all these sort of like partners work with us? Or do we just like subsume their technology? And so they we lost that debate. And so they decided to basically rebuild what we had built internally and to <laughs> it was funny. They like they took the dial of the traffic they were giving us and they slowly turned it down. And we were like, guys, we can see what's happening here. And they're like, no, 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 it's all good. Don't worry about it. And like we have the data. We're like, guys, we can see what you're doing. And they just were just like, Ooh. and so uh... as our business, our revenue, our customer base is just going through the roof. We're just watching our traffic just like slowly dying away. And it was brutal. So in the end of 2015, we ended up selling the company to LinkedIn and another buyer in this crazy auction. And that was the end of end of 2014, beginning of 2015. That was the end of that story. It was a sort of a melancholy ending. That's the agony next to you being entrepreneurs. You have these moments of elation. This is a rocket ship. We're taking over the world. And all of a sudden there's like, Darth Vader Zuck over there just sticking his fork in your side. Was it bittersweet selling it and kind of winding it down? What was the kind of experience? Oh, God, it was excruciating. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I like this analogy of having been gutted because, like, we were alive, but my guts were literally hanging on the floor and I knew we were dead, but we were still alive and growing. I mean, we had these customers loved us. Our revenue was increasing. Like our business was like, if you looked at our business on any level, you could see that we were just going to do hundreds of millions of revenue. And then, but if you looked behind the curtains at what Facebook was doing, you knew we were dead. And so it was just like this really, oh, it was brutal. I mean, that was a 10 year period of my life where all I did was think about how to make that business work. And like, I threw every ounce of my entire existence against that wall and to finally have it stick. And then to finally have it go and to feel that feeling of product market fit is a few, I mean, I'm grateful that I got to feel that, but to have that feeling and then to have it ripped away from you in, I think a very sort of painful way. Oh God, it was the most horrible moment of my life that year. 
just to give you a sense of how crazy that year was, that was my bad year. Like my marriage ended, my mom died, my company got ripped away by Facebook, every bad thing you can imagine. And my house literally burned down. <laughs> and in that moment, I was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, like, right. Really, At that point, my it's house like, burned down was nothing compared to how bad that year was. It was a country music song. It was. What year vintage is this? Is 2013 ish? 15. 15 was my bad year. Okay. I'm glad I didn't have a truck or a dog because my truck would have broke down and my dog would have run away. Like it was just so bad. So you made it through, you came out the other side. And so you were actually started writing checks that same year. Was that the actual? Yeah. Yeah. So like basically 2014 was a gutted, but not yet dead year. And then right in the spring of 15 is when the exit happened. And then I was suddenly cast loose. And like I said, I was wandering around like a lost, wet, lonely puppy trying to figure out what to do with my life. And that's when I started sort of like stumbling around writing checks. Not even what writing checks is, it's like I was writing syndicates. I was writing memos about why other people should invest in these deals and then got lucky that people actually agreed with me. And so you take any sort of sabbatical? Did you have a plan at that time? Or it was more just like, look, I got a couple of friends. I want to write a check into what they're doing. What was the sort of vision or was there one? No, there was no plan. My ex and I took this amazing three-month vacation, went to Northern India, Nepal, Bhutan, went trekking literally for like two months in the mountains. And that was awesome. But yeah, I know it's the hard part about like being an entrepreneur is like the entirety of everything is focused on one point. It's you have this point in the future that you're executing against and you literally you subsume and you subordinate your existence to that direction. And then whenever that ends, it's incredibly challenging from just a mental sort of health perspective, because that's the foundation of so much of your life. Oftentimes, it just crumbles. And when that happens, you find yourself on very unstable footing. And so for me, that year was very difficult. And thankfully, the investing side of things became a sort of path out of that. But it was not clear. And in the beginning, it was very much sort of something I was doing on the side, maybe 25% of my time. Well, if there's any place in the world to recover and have some peace, Bhutan is probably the right one. I went there with my mom a handful of years ago to do a kind of a mother-son trip and extremely memorable. We still have, we brought back a bunch of peppers because they put peppers in everything. Like it's like there's (laughs) the local heat and then there's the tourist heat and even at breakfast, every meal. Emadatse is, I can't even remember the name of the dish. It's something like Emadatse. So I have peppers growing here that I'm the only one that can eat and my family says no chance, but... I love that. It's so good. In Nepal and Bhutan, that was like the one breakthrough for me was I would be like, no, I want it properly hot, like the way you eat it. And they'd be like, no, you're crazy. I'm like, no, no, I want that. And like, oh, it makes the food taste so much better. Like that's the way it's meant to be eaten. It's just like so hot you cry. I got so many fun stories from that trip. I would take a Pepto with every meal and just like sweat my way through it. You can't be too serious about anything when half the country, the buildings just have giant phallus penises on them. (laughs) If you've never been, you don't understand my reference, but it's funny. My favorite door handles that are truly giant, erect penises are the door handles. And they're like in a nice person's house. And it's just, it's a weird Bhutanese thing. They love that. And it's like, it's their style. It's like the god of fertility who was also mischievous or something. I can't even remember, but special time for sure. So you go to Bhutan, you start throwing in some investments. Talk to us about the cruise. Because that, I mean, to hit sort of the lottery on one of your first three, 
that's pretty rare. I think AngelList actually just came out with some stats and they say, look, it's like a one to two percent of the deals are like these big unicorn winners. I think everyone expects all of them to be unicorns, but particularly in 2021, maybe it feels like that number is a lot higher, but it's rare. Talk to us about what that experience was like. Did that happen also in 2015 or was that a few years later? I'm trying to remember when they got bought. Yeah, what's crazy is like the first three companies I invested in, Branch became a unicorn, Cruise sold for a billion. And the third one was One Signal, which I'm convinced will, if they don't get bought too early, will be a unicorn. So yeah, I think it was just like karmic sympathy. The world basically just felt sorry for how <laughs> locked my life was and decided to just throw me like a bone. From a professional allocator perspective, I think what's interesting and what I've learned subsequently is that it's really in this business, it's very time-driven. So you have these moments in venture where tremendous value is being created and they're very temporal. There's new technologies, there's new sort of like appropriate opportunities that emerge for those technologies. You have a new platform. You have these new things that enable tremendous value to be created. And what ends up happening, and I've seen it over and over again, is you have sort of a cadre of people in Silicon Valley and now scattered all over the world. They're kind of like that Liam Nielsen movie where like they steal his daughter and he's like, I have the right skills to fucking make your life miserable. There's this group of people who have the right skills at the right time and the right energy that they basically can basically see the opportunity and they can do it. Like they know how to raise the money. They know how to build the technology. They know how to hire the team. They know how to recognize value and opportunity. And so there's these moments in time where it all comes together and 2015. I mean, I think now is also that moment in time in a different way. But in 2015, there was this moment in time where like, my group of people were just like, they were bringing it. They ended up bringing and creating just a tremendous amount of value. And that's why when you look at venture funds traditionally, you generally look at them in vintages. You're like, okay, you're a manager. You started deploying this year. So do these other managers. How do you compare to the other managers from that year? Because the difference between the investment landscape in 2015 and 2019 is totally different. And both from a strategic and operational perspective, you have to think about it very differently. From a decision-making perspective, you have to think about it very differently. But just in terms of just this, like the zeitgeist changes so dramatically in this business. But yeah, 15 was, was a hot year. The wine was good that year. And so you have this feeling this happens. Was it then like, hey, look, maybe I'm good at this? Maybe this is what I enjoy doing. I never want to go back to be an entrepreneur. That was brutal. That's too much work. What was the next steps? Walk us through kind of the last five years post-cruise. When the cruise exit happened, I knew and I publicly said forever, I will always say it, it was just done luck. I've known Kyle. Kyle's amazing. But I'm not an expert in autonomous cars and the underlying AI there. I'm not the guy who went in and did the analysis and came out saying, no, we must do this. It was like, I know Kyle. I like Kyle. I know Nabil and Spark. I like them. Okay, I'm going to do this deal. And so, yeah, in the early years, for me, it was very much kind of learning my footing, learning this job, learning how to add value and how to basically get allocation, how to be a good partner for both the other VC firms that I invest alongside, for my entrepreneurs, for my investors, for the ecosystem, how to use AngelList in a way that was productive. It really, for me, was sort of like I slowly worked my way into it. So in the next year, I did maybe 50% of my time and I did some consulting to kind of pay the bills. And then eventually it became very clear that like, oh, one, I love this job. I like to say that 
being an entrepreneur is sort of like being a gladiator. So like, imagine like in the beginning of the Russell Crowe movie and he's a slave in the base of the little arena with all the other slaves and everyone's terrified because they know they're about to be gutted by like a dull knife. I can't imagine how scary that would be. And you're all down there and you grab whatever weapons you can get and they push you out in the middle and you literally fight and you sweat and you bleed until you die or you maybe get to exit. And it's like being an entrepreneur is like that. You get pushed out in the ring with whatever weapons you have, whatever team you can bring, and you're fighting. And so like every problem that you hit, just like every opponent in the ring, you beat them, they send two of you. So you get one problem, they send two of you. You beat them, they send four. You beat them, it's like they shoot arrows at you and they come at you with chariots. Each problem as an entrepreneur is an escalating series of complexity and difficulty, and you keep going into infinity. And so you eventually run into the limits of your own competence. And it's both the most personally fulfilling experience ever because it's truly the expression of all of your entire entity against a problem set. But it's also the most brutal experience because you're constantly being pushed against whatever your limits of your capabilities are. I did that job for 20 years. I love that job. It's super fun. But now I'm literally one of the douchebags in the stands, drinking a cold beer, betting on which entrepreneur is going to live or die. And that is in and of itself a very different job. But my favorite thing about the job is I get to like run out in the middle and like pretend like I'm still a gladiator and help out. I'm like, oh, let me help out for like a few minutes. And I'm like, hold on, my beer is getting warm. I got to go back. But I love that there's like the interface between where I sit in the investing stack and the entrepreneurs is that I love that I can be the participant in the game. Whereas as a public markets investor or later stage investor, you're along for the ride, but you're not able to go into the middle and fight in the same way. I love that. You sort of have the perfect resume, the experience. I mean, it's hard to convey to someone the experience of being an entrepreneur and again, the agony and ecstasy of it. If you haven't been through it, it's like trying to explain to a virgin what sex is like. It's hard to convey with words. And so it gives you a certain appreciation. So talk to us a little bit about what's your philosophy, what's your framework, what sort of investments do you look for? Just like what's the general process for your wheelhouse? My personal expertise, B2B software, B2B2C, that's where I spend all my time early stage. Basically, I like to play before you have month over month sort of metrics where any idiot VC can extend the line. Once you get to like three to six months of month over month, You'll get 20 guys will show up, they'll extend the line and they'll write the check. I like to play where it's still qualitative, where you're still like talking about value, you're talking about competition. Nobody really knows yet how the business is going to play out. Mudwater is like really one of the only exceptions to that, but we can get into the Mudwater story, which I love. But but so for most, most would consider this to be a traditional pre-seed seed. Is that the right sort of genre? Yeah. So I invest, my energy and time is sort of from the very beginning. So the first check-in pre-seed through the seed once you've got maybe like the beginnings of an idea and you've got maybe some product and you're like, you're starting to basically make contact with the market all the way up through the series A, which is like where I basically call them the idiot line extenders, which is like, that becomes a very different sort of investing game. I continue to invest through the life cycle of my businesses, which is that like once I'm inside, hopefully I have a relationship with the CEO where like they call me up when things are going wrong. I'm the person who like loves to jump out of the stands and help. And so I want them to call me when they're like, they're having trouble. And because then what ends up happening is that like you get to learn the real truth about these businesses. Like you can actually see the dirty nastiness that is just the way execution works. And 
I get to invest with inside information because I know more in that capacity than any new investor who's showing up. And oftentimes I know more than the board because the board gets this very carefully constructed narrative, whereas hopefully I get to hear the truth. I'll keep writing checks all the way up until effectively until we IPO. You hit on a really interesting topic or point, I should say. As a public market investor, we talk all the time about what's your edge? Where's your value add? And it's hard. It's like the most competitive people trying to jostle over these companies that are worth 10, 100, 500 billion dollars. And there's a gazillion competitors. And inside information is technically illegal. Didn't used to be really. It's kind of a gray area 20 years ago, but now it's really hard. Whereas you have a very important point, which is if you're a private market investor, particularly if you're on the inside, so you already invested at the pre-seed seed, and you get to see what's going on behind the scenes, it is a massive value add. And as someone who's kind of seen this over the past seven years, it's an insight that you can push your chips in and say, oh man, this company is now a rocket ship. Let me double, triple, quadruple down. And if you don't have a seat at the table, you never get to see that. Or you're at a huge disadvantage. So I think one of the biggest inefficiencies of the traditional venture capital market is that like a lot of these firms have originally, they constructed themselves to only operate a certain stage. So they're the Series A investor, and then they're going to hand the company off to the Series B investor, who's going to hand the company off to the Series C investor. And the reason why that happened is, is that you have these partnerships, and no one really trusts each other in a lot of these partnerships. And so and every individual partner has an incentive to support their own company. And so if you're in a partnership, you've invested in a company in the Series A, and then you go to your partners like, hey, I want to back up the truck and write a big check into the Series B, a lot of your partners are going to be like, yeah, I don't know if I trust you. Because your personal incentive as a VC becomes different than your partner's incentive for the deployment of partnership capital. And the LPs when they're really measuring you as a firm, if you're marking up your own deals, the LPs traditionally don't really like that. They like to see that outside validation coming in of new investors with new pricing. And so that the VC industry has traditionally operated and it's we've had access to that information. We get to use it, but we just don't. And so I think it's like one of the really interesting opportunities in VC is like, how do you become an insider in these businesses and then just like exploit in the good way, but use that information to deploy more capital in a way where you know. Because I mean, there's no company where a new investor shows up where I'm an insider in where I don't know way more than they do. Guaranteed. There's like, I know more just because I've been there. I know what's going on. So this is one of the reasons, and we talked about this on a recent blog post I did called Journey to 100X, where I think it's, I'm up over 250 private investments at this point, a handful wow. I've done with you. And part of the original goal, and you can go back and listen to the podcast five years ago, was to learn and not just learn about investing in the private world as a public markets guy and the startup scene, but also to gain insights into what these companies are doing that may inform other parts of the world. And I think certain people would say this, not necessarily derogatory, but say, look, that's just a spray and pray methodology. But from my standpoint, is like I'm acquiring a ton of knowledge. And just on AngelList alone, it's almost 4,000 deals have reviewed, and not even including the ones you invest in. You invest in, and then you get further information, some of which, of course, don't share. But to me, it's been an amazing insight into what's going on in the world. 
in general. So, and then when you find the rare ones, and we've had a few of these on the show, Mudwater is a perfect example. Traditionally, my stance was to not to do follow-on investments unless it was just like so clear. But there have been those. Anyway, so it's not necessarily unique insight, but it's an insight that a lot of people don't appreciate. And I think it's a crucial insight to where you can benefit from this sort of behind the curtain knowledge that many just don't see. I'm actually surprised that like there aren't more public market investors and folks who are on AngelList, like just in every syndicate, just sitting there watching what's going on. Because you can write a thousand dollar check into these early stage companies. Now you're effectively an insider and you're going to be able to see what's going on with these really high growth businesses and across any sector you want. So like if you want to learn about space, let's say you're a public market investor, you're like, okay, I'm going to learn about space. There's not a lot to do in the public markets, but you go into AngelList and you start looking at the space deals and you're going to learn about satellites. You're going to learn about launch vehicles. You're going to learn about manufacturing. And you're going to get this really interesting education that nobody is publishing in blog posts. Nobody is talking about on podcasts. I kind of look at this. I mean, there's 3,200 people in my syndicate now. And I'm like, wow. I don't understand why there's not like 32,000 because there's just so much information that just gets constantly shared that you don't get anywhere else. So it's crazy how that's We'll see how many Meb Faber show listeners (laughs) join you. I highly recommend it. There's a good public markets analogy for the people listening who haven't started to invest on the startup side. And that's old school stock investors. Buffett used to talk about this and others where you could just go buy one share of a company and they would do it to track it. So say, look, I don't want to invest in this company yet. I don't know enough, but I'm going to buy one share. That way I get the annual reports. I get to read it every quarter. I get to follow along with all this information as a way to just keep it within your sphere of interest. And for me, I end up doing that a lot with some of these companies. For me, your job is actually the hardest. The pre-seed sort of qualitative to me requires 10 or 100x more work. <laughs> so I often, it, like the seed or even tilting what now would probably be considered series A with the valuations, to me, that's a lot easier when you, as a quant, you see the stair step metrics. But often I'll do a starter position to say, I just want to follow this company in the hopes that if it does work and takes off, you can then really start to scale up and invest at that point and to track it. Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense. So you're a little more plugged in. And having started doing a few deals, walk us through kind of how you started sourcing deals in the beginning. Was it just rubbing elbows with your buds in the mission and walking around Market Street? Or I used to live in San Francisco. I was just blanking on all the neighborhoods. <laughs> the marina, happy hour. What was the process then? And then walk us forward to how you go about it now. It's all for me, it's network driven. So you can think about the venture business, you have kind of three ways of kind of executing this business. You can build a big brand, then that brand can be your personal brand, or it can be the brand you build as a firm. So you got Sequoia on one hand, or you've got random solo GP like me who out tweeting and making noise and telling the world what I think about things. That's useful. You get a lot of deal flow because of brand. Quality tends to be a very mixed. So I'll get dozens of emails every day about new companies and they're not very good. But you get some good stuff from brand. The second category is network. So it's all about your personal reputation and the people you know and the value that you've added. And so these that for me is everything. Like my friends send me great deals every day and I'm like, oh my God, that's so cool. And it's just over and over again how because your friends, they know you, they know what kind of stuff you like to invest in. They kind of act as a filter and they can really bring high quality stuff. 
And so the, my friends, whether they're the ones starting the company or whether they're introducing me to the person who started the company, that's where the real sweet honey is. And so for me, I wrote this big tweet somewhere about this back at the beginning of the year. For me, my strategy is all about adding leverage value into the ecosystem. So I want to help people where the value that they get is 100x more than what it costs me to do. So if I can introduce you to another VC who does the deal, well, guess what? You both owe me a favor. I gave that guy a deal and I gave the founder the introduction. Or if I can introduce you to a customer or an employee, or if I can like provide some information or do something where literally it takes me a few minutes or seconds, and for you, it's way more valuable... I do that all day. I give as freely as I can into the ecosystem to the people that I can work with around adding value so that in the hopes that like people are like, oh, that's that guy. He's an idiot, but he's useful. Let's get him involved. And they call me up and they let me join their cap table or they let me continue to be involved in their businesses. And then the third sort of category is traditional sourcing, which is you sit down, you're looking for businesses in certain areas and you basically reach out to them. And you're like, hey, I want to talk to you. That's super time intensive. And you need really a lot more sort of like the early stage stuff where I play. No one even knows about it yet. It's literally like my buddy calls me up. It's like, hey, I got this idea. And like that moment in time, that's not public yet. So the sourcing, you don't get to that. It's really for later stage guys. And it starts to make sense when you get late. But like in the early stage, it's not very effective. All right. So you have roughly 3,000 syndicate investors. How many deals are you looking to do a year? I'm sure it's time dependent on just what you see, but is there a kind of ballpark number that you're tackling and what sort of checks are you guys typically writing? I also raised a proper fund. I work with the industry ventures guys and now some new LPs are joining this proper vehicle. We announced it last summer as a $45 million fund that I work off of. Congratulations. Thank you. I got lucky there. The first deal I did with industry I'd written this term sheet to hella sign to like give them a little bridge. And Brad from Foundry found out about it and called me up. He's like, Zach, can we turn this into a B? And I was like, yeah. Because I mean, Brad's like one of my heroes, like one of the best venture investors of all time. To invest alongside the Foundry guys was like super cool. So I had this slug in this B as a result. And the industry guys were like, oh, we'll do that with you. And so we did the deal. And I got lucky. Like a year later, we sold it to Dropbox. And so the industry guys just were like, oh, here's some more rope. Go hang yourself. They've been amazing partners. I've been really, 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 really appreciative of working with them. I mean, look, I mean, this is you hit upon a point that I think goes back as long as there's been markets that if you make money for someone, they're not forever in your debt, but they forever sort of love you. And so a good example is like there's about five or 10 angelist syndicates that I invested in over the years that have done really well. I put you in this category that most of the time, like I only end up investing about 5% of the deals you see, but there's this category of like hall of fame that I'm going to give it a second, third, fourth look That's and awesome. spend a lot more time on it than you would. And the same thing I think applies to anything is if someone finds you or does really well on investing, whether it's real estate, whether it's job, anything, it creates a relationship that wouldn't be there if it was the opposite. You just lose someone's all their money. Okay, so you got this fund and then you have the syndicate. What's the typical check size? I'm sure that's changed over the years. It's grown, yeah. I've got the fund, the syndicate, and then I also have a rolling fund. Angel has launched this rolling fund vehicle, which is literally the most LP-friendly thing ever. You can join for a quarter. And then if you decide I'm an idiot, you can leave. If you like it, you're like, oh, I just sold something and I got more money. You can increase your commitment. You can decrease your commitment. It's like 10K a quarter, I think right now is the minimum. So it's really lightweight. And so folks join that 
they ride along with me with my deals via the rolling fund. And so between those three vehicles, generally for early stage, my checks will be anywhere from like a million or 500 to 1.5. And then once we get into the later stage, sort of A and later, the checks can get bigger so we can go two to $5 million. I don't take board seats. It's very much for me about like being the helpful guy on your cap table, but not being the guy who's going to try to be your boss. You're like a cell phone board seat. You're like, look, you want to <laughs> ring me up and chat with me? You want to text? To me, that's way better. All right. So let's go through a few names as sort of a case study on how you thought about it at the time. What was the thesis? Why did this fit your sort of investment methodology? And then kind of walk forward the outcomes. I'll let you pick. Any names you feel are particularly interesting from the vintage? Yeah. Well, I mean, let's start with mud because we've been talking about mud. Mud's a great start. I'm down to the mud. Nice. YouTubers can see it. I actually add a little bit of chocolate in mine too. So I have a definite mushroom chocolate mush at the bottom of this. All right. What was the attraction? Because this is a pretty unique story. Mud's totally off thesis for me. I don't really do consumer. So basically what happened is like Shane and Paul, the founders of Mud, had done a business before that was a SDR, sales development rep as a service business. So and I was an advisor to the company and helped them kind of through the years. And they were just amazingly hard workers, focused, really sort of metrics driven, like the kind of folks that like you just love to be part of their journey. And unfortunately, that business went sideways and just really struggled to kind of get out of the gate. But they worked really hard at it. And so Shane was a designer on the team. He's like, fuck it, I'm going to go to paint. So he goes to go to paint. And over there, he's always been into mushroom tea because it's really good for you. And the problem is it tastes like shit. Raw mushroom tea is just uh, tastes horrible. So he gets into like the sort of Indian chai blending techniques where you bring cinnamon and cardamom and black pepper and keiko and all these ingredients to make it take normal chai tea tastes kind of like coffee in a way. You can blend this interesting blend to make it good. And so he starts messing around with that with mushroom tea. And he comes up with this blend that tastes good. Like tastes really good. It tastes like you can drink mud water and you're like, oh, this is good stuff. And so he comes back and they call it mud water because it has this particulate matter. Mushrooms do not sort of disintegrate in the water. So there's going to be a particulate matter at the bottom. And his friends are like, oh, we want to buy this. And so he he puts it up in the Shopify page. And first month he sells like this, like April, a couple of years ago, sells like $5,000 of the tea. And then in May, he sells like $10,000 worth of tea. And then in June, he sells like $20,000 worth of tea. So they call me up. They're like, Zach, we got this thing. And we don't know what we're doing. I mean, we know what we're doing, but we need some help. So I reach out to the syndicate. I'm like, guys, does anybody know CPG? And we find a bunch of great CPG people. And I make a bunch of introductions, just generally just trying to be useful. And so the next month, they do $40,000 worth of tea. And they're like, Zach, we got inventory problems. <laughs> We're scaling too fast. We got no money. We're running out of credit cards. And I was like, okay, guys, I love you. I invest in people. This is a no-brainer for me. And so we wrote a 400K note at a five cap. Wow. And some other investors joined us. But it was very much when I wrote the memo to the syndicate members, I was like, guys, I don't know anything about mushroom tea. I'm not an expert in CBG, but here's what we're looking at. This is the deal. And everyone just piled in, which is a testament to how smart the syndicate is. It's interesting. There's this really weird wisdom of the crowds thing where like they see my worst deals and they're like, yeah, they're like my best deals. They just pile into. And I'm like, it's eerie how powerful they are. There's something magical about when there is that product market fit. You experienced it briefly as an entrepreneur. You see it in other companies. Mudwater is a classic example where it just seems so obvious. 
There's the metrics, which are obvious. There's the category and product. And one of the challenges I love to invest in in some of these product companies, I always like to try them first because some I'm like, eh. Some I'm like, oh my God, how is this not a billion dollar thing? And that was the reaction with Mudwater. And there's times when it just, it seems like the perfect moment in time. And that was the case, it seems like, with their opportunity. It's like lightning hit in that bottle. And the cool thing is, is that that deal, you can think about the timing there. They needed cash in weeks. And there's no time to go out to the VC firms and go through a traditional VC process. It's just growing like crazy. And so that's where relationships really drive the value capture in this venture investing business is like, you want to be the guy that they call when they need you. We invested in that round and then they've been off to the races ever since. I mean, they're now a global brand. I mean, they're going to do hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue in the next couple of years at the rate they're growing. I'm not going to publicly say their number this year, but it's like, they're close to that now. I mean, it's just like crazy how well they're doing. It's a great story too. Cause like, I mean, he literally just started making his kitchen. It's one of these entrepreneur things where 99.9% of us would have this idea, make it in your kitchen for your friends. And that would be the end of it. And then there's the crazy 0.1% of like, you know what? I'm going to actually make this a business. And then they're like, oh, wait, there's all these regulatory food safety production, forget it. But then the 0.01 keep doing it. And then obviously that's why they break through. By the way, listeners, when we had Shane on the podcast, they had a promo code MEB, M-E-B, for 10 bucks off. I would add to anyone who needs an alternative to coffee, this is your thing. Now, not everybody loves it because it's still mushroom tea and it's got a unique flavor, but like there's a good chance that it'll be your jam. You can do the Meb recipe, half coffee, half mud water, and a sprinkling of chocolate. Nice. That sounds good. It's delicious. Okay. So that slightly off brand, but was a perfect investment. It's done really well. It's continuing to grow. They're adding more products. Walk us through another one. I'll give you another example. So I'm an investor in a company called CareRev. So CareRev basically provides on-demand nursing staffing for hospitals. And what's really interesting about the way hospitals work, my mom was a nurse. So I got to kind of watch this when I was a kid. Hospitals, from their staffing perspective, they have their traditional sort of employees or staff, union employees almost always, really unflexible, really expensive over time. And you've got on the other side and sort of supply, but on the demand, you have really, really dramatically changed in demand. Like something can happen and your beds are full and you need staff on the spot. And then something else can happen and you don't need them. You've kind of got this weird problem where staffing demand can move up and down, but staffing, traditional staffing supply, because of union regulations, is tends to be very inflexible and really struggles to sort of meet up with demand. And so traditionally, you've had that, your employee base, and then you've had a traditional staffing agency, which literally is like you call them and maybe they can get you somebody and like you got a 10% hit rate and it's like huge pain in the butt. And their staffing agencies are very small. They don't have scale. And they're just like, they're not optimal for solving your, I need somebody today problem. And then you have a travel nurse, which is like, you'll hire a nurse to come work for your team for like three or four months. And up through that, that's about all you had. And so hospitals have always struggled with nurses. So I got introduced to Will through some good buddies of mine who are fellows investors. He went through YC and their initial model, the CareRev model was use the cell phone to enable on-demand staffing for nurses. Basically, we need a nurse and then boom, it goes out to hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of nurses who could be able to fill the role and be like, hey, we have a job tonight at this hospital. Here's how much it pays. Here's the requirements. And if you want to 
say yes, push the button, and we'll bring you in. So it's, you can think about it as traditional Uberization of nursing. So I got introduced to Will, the founder, through, and he used to be a nurse. So like he's went to business school and everything else, but like he was a nurse. He understands this problem really well through some good buddies of mine. And it was one of those deals where it's like they were still kind of fighting in with the inertia of hospitals because these hospitals had these traditional ways of staffing and like you're trying to get them to change. And it's like, it's really, really difficult. But it was clear that that's the model. That's the right answer. Push button, get a nurse. And as your demand moves up and down, you can move staffing up and down. And I was like, I fell in love with Will because he's literally one of the scrappiest guys you ever met. And so I invested in a, I think a $15 million valuation and did the syndicate and like got involved with the company. And it was like one of these, oh my God, this guy is just, he's just so aggressively working at this problem. I love this guy. And so we've invested in every single round since and now own a pretty significant portion of the company. And it's just been so much fun to watch because once they figured out how to get into these hospitals and help these hospitals really change the way they do their business. And it's funny, it's so obvious in retrospect, but the answer to that problem was software. They built SaaS software that these hospitals could use to solve their internal staffing problems. And suddenly SaaS software in these staffing units suddenly made their lives easier, which made it possible to use CareRev. And so then their whole business totally went off the races. And it's well on its way to be a multi-billion dollar business. It's a good example of sort of like how I got to jump out of the stands and run out in the middle and help a little bit. And I like, I just fell in love with the entrepreneur and how they do their job. And like, it's super fun. This is such a great example of, I mean, look, everyone talks about software eating the world and the challenges there, but like anytime there's an industry that's just still done on yellow notebook paper, or there's major just roadblocks to inefficiencies, hospital, great example, government, of course, emerging markets is a huge one where people still do stuff literally on pen and paper. And this is a good example where if you can just plow through and wedge your way in and just like get it to the point where you get through all the bureaucracy, like you mentioned, then it's just a billion dollar possibility. The struggle is like the months or years of that initial challenge of getting it to work is so hard. But once you do, it's magical. And this is a classic industry. I've known plenty of nurses. And I imagine the last year, plus the trends now of labor shortages, nursing is like the all time, like it's always a shortage and a problem. I imagine that business is, like you said, like a just pure rocket ship over the next year or two. It's been really fun to watch. Every month we get a new update. And it's just like, I mean, it's growing at incredible month over month growth rates, even though it's already a pretty good sized business. And you look at like their competitors, I mean, they're public market companies and they have no technical capabilities whatsoever. I'm bullish on that one. You mentioned the syndicate as a resource. Has there ever been a scenario where you email out and say, hey, I got this deal. And then somebody writes back and they're like, Zach, dude, are you serious? Do you know this founder? Like he's a habitual liar. He's had securities fraud. Did you know X, Y, Z? And you're like, oh, just kidding. We're not going to do this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It just happened oh, to me. really? <laughs> we had a deal where I fell in love with the founder, just a really scrappy guy. And I fell in love with the story and the business model. And the growth was great. And it was other fellow investors who introduced me and like everything was looking really good. And I was like, let's do this deal. I like it. The thing about my job is that there's this really interesting balance between the known and the unknown. In that like where I sit, there's a lot of unknown and there's some known. But you speed 
moving quickly and making decisions quickly is of the essence in this business. This is not a business where like diligence and time is your friend. And like diligence and time invariably will cause you to basically be too slow or be unable to do the deals where you have a lot of sort of risk in the unknown. So I operationalize around moving quickly and making decisions very rapidly because founders, they demand that. If you don't do that, you don't get to be in the deal. So anyway, I committed to doing this deal. And I sent out the memo to the syndicate backers. And the great thing is when you got 3,000 eyes on a problem, somebody's going to figure out every little hidden thing. And someone did. And I got this email. And then I actually got a couple emails and people were like, check this out. And so I did some digging. And it was hidden, like my initial diligence. Like I do diligence. I went and I reviewed a bunch of stuff, but I didn't find this. And these guys did. And I was like, oh, no. No, we're not doing this. And literally, I wrote an email to the founder. I was like, I love you, bro. But like what you told me and this are not the same. We got on a call and he like did the song dance and like he made a lot of excuses. And I was like, no, I'm not investing in that. And so we pulled the plug. I hate doing that. But like the problem you have with early stage is that every entrepreneur, because there's so much unknown, there's a lot of them who are just liars. Now, there's the evil liars, and then there's the people who exaggerate, and then there's the people who will spin a narrative to make it seem really pretty. And I think one of the most important parts of my job is sussing those things out and identifying what is truth and what is bullshit and trying to figure out how to be with the people who are like, what they're doing is working so well, they don't need to lie to you and get rid of the people who like will lie to you. So in this case, I was like, I don't know if the guy was lying to me or if he was just kind of like shaming in a certain way, but I was like, I don't want to do this deal. So we canceled it. There can be competing interests and incentives across all these. And you talk about it. If you look at some of the greatest entrepreneurs in history, you have this scenario many times of the fake it till you make it. I mean, my God, look at the names. You could just go down the list. Elon Musk on one hand, and then the Theranos girl on the other hand, Adam Newman, on and on and on and on and on. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. And then trying to decide if it's intentional or if it's just like, hey, I really believe this outcome but I'm just delusional. It makes the qualitative part of your job important, particularly where you operate versus the later stages. As you look kind of to the horizon, so you've invested in probably a couple dozen companies at this point? So there's about 50 companies in the portfolio over five and a half years now, deployed about $55 million of total capital so far. Awesome. And I look at this very much as like, I'm learning and growing. We all aspire to be sort of the horizon of imagine you have unlimited capital and you're just, you go in and you write huge checks and you make dreams come alive. We all aspire to that, but there is the operational sort of reality of like you executing this job, you learn, and then you move up. And then you see, I used to like play semi-professional poker. If you look at like the little one, two table, and then you move to the like five, 10 table and it's a very different game. And then you look over at the 10, 20 table and you're like, oh my God. And so it's a similar thing in venture. It's like, each stage you move up to, each check size you move up to is harder and it's a different game. And you got to like figure out if you can do it or not and on that path and see where you end up. As you kind of look around, it's 2021. Obviously, the venture space is changed over the last three, four years. You've seen entrants like My World, where Tiger and other people have started moving down the chain and just, I mean, the technical phrase, just throwing bags of cash everywhere, maybe. <laughs> How has this impacted what you do? And in the same sort of question, what do you think the future looks like for your world? There's been some, again, Angelus didn't exist really a decade ago. So what have the main thoughts on today and then tomorrow? 
we've been making way too much money in the venture industry for way too long as a group. I mean, my portfolio is running at like 46% IRR like every year. Come on, you can't get that to 50? Come on, Zach. Yeah, no, you got to step it up a little bit. I got a big markup that literally like as soon as we can put this on the sheet, like it's got to close. So like we got the term sheet, it's all going to close. And like that, I think will kick me up over 50. But the problem is like then the next leg. So like we got to get Karev to go raise it a billion, Mud to raise it a billion. Then we'll just keep going. But yeah, I mean, we've all been making way too much money for way too long. And so like the Tigers of the world who are super happy with like a 15% IRR, if they can run a consistent 15% IRR against the kind of capital they deploy, they're going to do that all day long. They're coming down and they're like, hold on a second. <laughs> you hogs are too fat. We are going to slaughter some hogs. And so they're bringing their acumen and their ability to move rapidly and their balance sheet effectively or their fund sizes to really put a lot of pressure on the top end of the venture markets. If you're a late stage VC who's used to running 30%, uh, good luck with that. And then on the bottom end, they can't play where I play because it's more qualitative. You can't come in and just run a quant engine against a company's metrics and make a decision. Like It's very qualitative. It's very network driven. We on the bottom end are more insulated from those folks. But on the other hand, there's been this amazing profusion of new managers who are like me, who have a network and can move rapidly and who don't have all the sort of like institutional hurdles that you get with a traditional VC firm that are really eating the lunch of the traditional VC firms. Like we're coming in, grabbing 10 plus percent ownership stakes in these companies before they get to the Sequoias of the world. And before they would have showed up and been able to write a check at a $20 million valuation. But now by the time we deliver the company to the VC firms, the company's much bigger, it's more established, revenues are bigger, it's growing faster, and the valuations will be 50 to $200 million. And so they have to write a bigger check and they've got to go later. And so there's for the VC ecosystem, there's just tremendous compression coming from the bottom end and from the top end. And it's good. It's, I mean, the industry has largely operated sort of like a cottage industry for many years. And it's very sort of like old boys network and closed off and people made slow decisions and they really kind of took advantage of entrepreneurs. And like now we're putting some pressure on those fools and I like it. No, it's great. You've had a lot of rocket ships. We didn't get a touch on Booksy. That was another one that's been on the podcast alum. Yeah, Booksy's awesome. Give us an idea, an early stage company. Look, I know you got dozens and this is like choosing from all your children, but of a company that you're excited about that hasn't yet exploded upward or hasn't had the massive move, but just some ways early stage, you're like, oh shit, this is a bomber idea. I'm really excited about this company. Well, the problem is, is that if I tell you that, then all the VCs <laughs> are going to go invest in it and then I'm not going to be able to invest in it. But I'll give you one that's really crushing it that is like, it's a little bit further along. Okay. Take your time. I'll give you a great story. So I'm an investor in a company called Sinai Technologies. And Sinai, basically, they build carbon tracking software for big corporations. So traditionally, if you're a big corporation, let's say you're a big steel company, and you wanted to know what your carbon footprint is, you'd go hire a bunch of consultants. They'd go and they'd basically figure out all the places that you're spewing carbon in the atmosphere. They'd make you a book. They'd hand you the book and they'd be like, here you go. Here's your entire carbon footprint, which makes no sense because these businesses, they change over time. They grow, they add factories, they remove factories. They sell more steel, they sell less steel. And so Sinai went in and built software for businesses like that, where you can plug in all the inputs and you can basically write the rules for how your business basically will change and evolve over time. And you can move stuff in and out. And so effectively, they built back-end software for understanding carbon footprint, which makes perfect sense. But the story 
it all started with this young woman I met who had just moved to Silicon Valley from Brazil. And she's literally one of the world's climate experts. She speaks on panels at the UN. Maria is like truly like one of the smartest people you ever met around carbon. And she wanted to build this, but she had to figure out how to do it. And I met her at this networking event at this woman's co-working space. And I like fell in love with her. I'm like, wow, she's awesome. Like she's going to save the world. And just started helping out and just trying to be useful and introducing her to people. And then she found this amazing co-founder who came out of Uber, who's like super technical and he'd made his money and he just wanted to go save the world. And so together they started building, they got to the YC interview. And so I introduced her to a bunch of my friends who are YC and they all did the block interviews. And she and I sat down and I was like, look, think about it this way. Imagine we put the proper price on carbon that if we had to remove it from the atmosphere, how much carbon would cost? And that's like 50 bucks a ton. And then like, let's measure all the carbon that we're currently releasing into the atmosphere, which is a shit ton. And so then you like say, how big is the carbon market? It's like many, many trillions of dollars. And right now that market is zero. And so like, you literally are going into a market that will be worth trillions of dollars because we have to price carbon. Otherwise our world is fucked. Like we have to price it or we're fucked. So like in which case, you basically are at the first inning of a multi-trillion dollar market that's currently virtually zero. I'm like, oh my God, like <laughs> this is the coolest thing ever. And so I invested in the company they got into YC and they crushed it and they went and they raised money from great people like Lee Fix, the edition is like Midas List, one of the best investors ever and a bunch of other great people and they're off the races, but like they're still sub hundred million dollar valuation, but like relative to the multi-trillion dollar market, that is going to be there. Like they're just at the beginning. I look at a company like that and like, there's a long way to go. Like you've got software to build, which is hard. You've got customers to work with, which is hard. You've got to like scale. There's all these hard things, but like you can look at that path and be like, oh my God, it could be so big. Like, oh, so big. Those are fun. The exciting ones when you talk about, there's a handful of companies where it comes like across your plate, and you think, oh man, either it's like, I've never even thought about that. That's amazing. Or I've always wanted someone to do this. Finally, there's <laughs> someone tackling it. And for me, those ideas, it's a lot lower bar where I'm like, I don't know that you're going to be the right person. In this case, it sounds like it's the exact right person, but someone is going to win with this idea. And finally, someone's tackling it. I love those. Those get me so, so excited. You don't see them a lot, but they do. As you sort of look back, what's been the most memorable investment? And I have an idea what you're going to say, but anything stick out in your mind? It could be good. It could be bad. Anything just seared into your brain? I've got like the sort of famous deals, but I'll give you a different story. One of my favorite deals is I invested in this company called Loom AI. So Loom AI, they, these two guys out of DreamWorks and Industrial Light and Magic, they literally invented the computer vision technology that powered Shrek. They built supercomputers and like all these super fancy cameras to like you put an actor in front of a screen, you tell them to make sad faces and they do. And then they pull that into the computer and then they use that to power the animation for Shrek. And, and so these guys are like rocket scientists. They're super smart and they won an Academy Award for it. They literally have an Oscar, which is cool as hell. But anyway, they decided they wanted to build a startup. And this is 2000. I met them in 2016 and just two guys. And they're just like, we're going to do this. And they didn't really know where they're going to go. And they're like, we're just trying to figure it all out. And I was like, fell in love. I'm like, these guys are amazing. I don't know what it is. It's just like, you just want to just want to love these people. I helped lead or I led the seed round, put in like 400K and then just got to work really closely with them over the years while they built this amazing team. 
They actually powered the Samsung AR emojis. They, the technology they built was on your cell phone. They would take a picture of your face and then it would use that to basically create the underlying technology for creating a really, really high quality avatar for you. And they really just built some of the best technology in the industry to do that. And so the end of last year, Roblox shows up and it's like, hey, we want to like, we're going to buy this company. And so like, they called me. So I got to be part of the sale process and like all the negotiations and like, which is always, I enjoy. It's like, it's this fun, like high wire dance where like on one side is tremendous wealth and the other side is sadness if you fail. It's fun to do that dance. We sold the Roblox and there was a moment at the very end when we all we signed it and it was in the middle of COVID. So like we did it over video and they were sitting in their backyard and like, I didn't cry, but I just felt like it because it was just like, it was emotionally just an amazing journey for these guys because they went through this ride. Now their families are going to be well supported for the rest of their lives. And now they're doing amazing stuff with Roblox. Like Roblox technology has it really just acquired this tremendous capability to take it to the next level. I just love that. I love these journeys. I tell people, I say one of the most challenging parts of my world the public world, I feel like it's a constant deluge of negative information. You watch CNBC and Bloomberg, which I love you guys, not throwing you under the bus. You read the Financial <laughs> Times, the Wall Street Journal, listen to podcasts, and it's a consistent just sort of negative macro news flow, the Fed, interest rates, yada, yada, just on and on. And it can be a little disheartening or depressing. And then on the flip side, you have these amazing stories of entrepreneurs that are working 24-7, risking their life. And on top of that, a lot of the ideas are world-changing and cool. And so you get to cheer for them and participate in what they're up to. And it's such a nice foil to the world of sort of public market investing that, again, I tell a lot of people, it's not like you have to put all your money in, but even if you're doing these like little $1,000 checks, it can be a big difference in your life. And then if you hit one and make a lot of money, gravy too. But it's a very positive, optimistic experience. And it's fun. That's the biggest one. It's a lot of fun. We'll eventually have a bear market and cycle through everything and clean out. But that's a lot of great companies get founded then too. It's a positive EV lottery ticket. If you make enough investments at the early stage, on average, you're probably going to make money. And at the end of the day, you're also like, it's a positive EQ, like, a lottery ticket. Like it truly is like your emotional quality of this investment is like no more interesting. Like you look at this little tiny company, you're like, I'm helping those guys. I'm helping well, and on top of that, I mean, the world. you get to be an early adopter in the amount of companies that I've included into my own business. I've passed along to friends. I mean, the Main Street story was one I love to tweet about because we oh. love to help people find free money. And they've found like hundreds of millions of dollars for companies. I can't believe I missed that. Ah! What do people like more than finding free money? It's free money from the government. <laughs> it's like a duel. Beautiful. Ah, I should have done that deal. I love those guys too. I was like, oh, it's like a great deal. And I just didn't get it done. <laughs> We've had Doug on the podcast a few times. That was awesome. I love that story. Resources. So if people want to follow you, if they want to learn more about angel investing in general, what's the best places? Do you have a website? Is it AngelList? Where do they go? So AngelList is a great place if you want to invest small amounts of capital or medium-sized amounts of capital. Institutional investors, you got to talk to me directly, which I'm sure will suck, but sorry. AngelList is great for my syndicate or my rolling fund. They're both a great resource. I tweet a lot. So Twitter works really well. I find that's a fun place to play. LinkedIn. I write a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. You're Bay Area based now the world's reopened. You got any travel plans? 
heading anywhere the rest of this year? Most of all the companies you look at domestic, by the way, or do you ever no, venture no. outside the U.S.? Book season Warsaw. Oh, that's right. Poland. I forgot. Is in Berlin. Enki is London. Osana Salute is Latin America. I look all over the world. I mean, it's I've got Canada and I'll go anywhere. Great ideas. They know no barriers. Yeah, I'm headed to Lisbon on what day is it today? On Sunday. So I'm excited for that. And Sweet. I just got my third shot. So I'm like feeling like superhuman. Hopefully dodge the vid. When we get together in person, I'll tell you my Lisbon stories. I have some fun ones. Nice. Surfing up and down Portugal. Zach, it's been a blast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's an honor because I love listening to your podcast. It's like long time listener. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.